Welcome to That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And this week we are wrapping up our three-week celebration, nearly a month-long celebration of all things America. And what better way to cap things up with maybe the most American of musicals, uh, I am not talking about Hamilton, which will, uh, I'm sure, will be the discussion for many people this coming weekend, uh, as it will be premiering on Disney Plus, and maybe we'll talk about that sometime in the future. I don't know. Oh, spoilers. It almost goes against, though, um, you know, the rules we've set out, the parameters that we've set out here, Paul. I think if it's not numbered and it's not technically an episode... Right, fine. I think I think some bonus content might be on the way. Fine, we'll give in to the demands of uh, you know the tens of tens uh, who want this. So uh, maybe that's coming along the way. But I am talking. But it, but it's all up to you, Cody. Yes. You know I am honored to be your obedient servant. Thank you. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> dot uh, p. We are. <laughs> thank you for the uh, sign off there. We are not talking about that. We're talking about what in many ways was the precursor to Hamilton. Uh, and that would be 197 or excuse me, 1776. I was thinking of the bicentennial. This comes out, by uh. the way, a full four years before the bicentennial. And uh, this the musical itself was on Broadway in 1969. Uh, the story of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, of course, set to song and dance, just like it happened in real life. Yes. Well, they all had wigs and makeup, you know. It was pretty close anyway. Yeah, it was very, very much a theatrical production every day of their life, you know. Lots of powder mm -hmm. and, yeah. And dysentery. A lot of dysentery, thank you. <laughs> you know, the things you expect from the theater. Yes. This comes out a full four years before Bicentennial Mania sweeps the nation. Uh, it doesn't do well at the box office, by the way. And in many ways, it's kind of a flop. Mm. If they had just shelved this until 1975, I bet you this is a massive hit. Mm, like, it's yeah. all it needed. Because I can recall my mom telling me when she was younger that I think it was in 1976 or around that time that this musical was on tour again and it wasn't say it was a sensation uh, still uh people just ate that shit up back in 1976 and, and paul it also makes me think this is maybe just uh, going off a different path here but what's the tricentennial gonna look like are we even gonna give a shit like uh, if we're I'm around sure. to see it but are people even gonna care you know i think they will okay i'm gonna say well what that's in we're 50, what? 56 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just a little over 50 years away from that. Let's see, 56. So we'd have to be, I'd have to be like 90. Yeah, it'd be my or, 80s. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I don't think I'm going to see it, Cody. I, I don't know. It's going to be tough. Well, you know what? At least we're going to get that big 250. So at, at least we'll see that. There you go. Not quite the pomp and circumstance of a tricentennial, but hey, we'll take it. Yeah, why not? I celebrate America every day, Cody. Thank you. I mean, as we all should, I stand out. I, I literally, as I get out of bed, I, I stand up. I salute uh, the flag. I do the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, every day. Every day. I make sure to actually repeat uh, under God 
uh, at least yes. four I times. I actually yell it at yeah. the top of my lungs. I, open, that part. <laughs> I open the window and I scream at <laughs> He's like, you can't make me take One this Nation out. under God! <laughs> That's what I do. We are, if nothing, the most patriotic uh, of podcasts. So we uh, yes. we salute you and uh, and all and, and all the such. But uh, let's talk about this uh, musical. I have a question for you, Cody. Uh, we 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 see a lot of founding fathers, some future presidents in this movie. How many people in this movie ended up becoming names for your pets? <laughs> for anyone listening who does not know this. Cody, please explain your pet situation. I was raised in a household, so this is a movie very near and dear to my heart, and a musical very near and dear to my heart. In fact, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, My mom is a huge, huge uh, U.S. history buff. Uh, in fact, when we would when we were kids, she also was a teacher. So when we were kids, we would sit around the din- the dinner table, and we would basically get quizzed on U.S. trivia and presidential trivia. This was like a nightly thing when we had our 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 dinners as a family. In fact, I think on a trip to Washington D.C., she even got us like uh, placemats that had like. All the U.S. presidents are like major moments in U.S. history. Okay. So like that's how deep we were in on it. And one of the th- the byproducts of that is that all of our pets from probably about 2000 on were named after presidents or had some sort of affiliation with uh, the United States history. We've had a Roosevelt. We had a Jefferson. Uh, these are all dogs. Uh a lady, but that was not quite the Lady Bird Johnson was the reasoning for that. My sister, yeah. that was her dog, and she called her Lady. And then my mom's like, "Well, she's Lady Bird Johnson." Then first Lady, of course, during <laughs> of Lyndon and B. also Johnson. the dog, also the dog's name in uh, King of the Hill. That's right, that's right. Who is actually named after Lady Bird Johnson in, yes. the, in the show? Uh, we've had a, a Kennedy and a, a Lincoln. So there okay. you go. So just so one. This movie, only one. Just Jefferson. But but your sister has a Franklin, correct? And, no, Hamilton. And my Hamilton, older sister oh, yeah. has a, now has a Hamilton. So Okay. Who is not in this movie? No, no no trace of Alexander Hamilton in this. There's a lot of people, like, Congress is portrayed as pretty small and intimate in this movie, when in reality it was about 50 people. Um, mm. But, you know, they don't get the budget. For 50 people. And also, it doesn't yeah. look as good when you stage 50 people rather than, you know, maybe about, uh, I don't know, 18 to 20 people. Just looks better. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I would wake up on 4th of July every year to this soundtrack playing throughout my house. Oh, my gosh. That is how I grew up. We would have big, uh, you know, big block parties. We lived in a cul-de-sac growing up, and we'd have big block parties. And how we would get ready was my mom would put on on a vinyl record player would put on the soundtrack of 1776 the broadway recording and uh have it ring out throughout the neighborhood whether people wanted to hear it or not you knew it was the fourth of july when coming out of the pasby household was william daniels saying vote yes uh, as loud as you could so that it this always signifies like you know Brings back a lot of warm feelings of like middle of summer and uh, lots of fun Fourth of July. So I, I have a very very special place in my heart for this. So enough waxing poetic about childhood and years gone by. Let's talk about the movie. 
Before we do that, though, let's talk about the musical. Before the original production of 1776 hits Broadway back in 1969, the American Revolution was no stranger to the Great White Way. In fact, in 1925, Richard Rogers, along with his less notable writing partner, Lorenz Hart, wrote the musical called Dearest Enemy, which is based on the story of Mary Lindy Murray, who delayed British rebels from catching up to American troops in New York by inviting them inside for some wine and cake. Uh, so uh, more of a small, intimate approach to the American Revolution. And then in 1950, the revolution served as the backdrop for the musical Arms and the Girl. Uh, music was co-written by songwriting legend Dorothy Fields. You would know her better for songs like The Way You Look Tonight, musicals like Sweet Charity, and she actually co-wrote the script uh, for Annie Get Your Gun. Oh, okay. So despite a huge pedigree, for I think, for both of these shows... Despite that, neither one really left much of an imprint, probably because both stories are really on the periphery of the American Revolution and not right in the heart of it. So enter pop songwriter Sherman Edwards, who, while writing songs for artists such as Elvis Presley, Sarah Vaughn, and Johnny Mathis, among many others throughout the 50s and 60s, was putting together songs in a script for a musical based on the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Film and television screenwriter Peter Stone, who's more well-known for his work on mysteries and thrillers like Charade and a super underrated, awesome 70s action thriller, The Taking of Pelham 123. Oh, yeah. I love that movie so much. It's so, so good. good. Uh, did you ever see the remake? I did. It's good. Yeah? Is yeah, that, it's pretty good. It's John Travolta's last, like, it's it's that, that moment of, like, okay, Travolta's just taking roles and doing weird stuff with his hair and beard but yeah he's still good in this one then it's just like now he's just taking roles to do weird things with his hair and beard and that's his thing now yeah it's pretty good yeah all right i'll have to check it's it out it's not like not as good uh, as the first know, one uh, yeah i'm not gonna you know obviously not but yeah who's it robert good. robert shaw right is the uh is the john Tra is the villain role in uh, the original one with uh walter matthau i believe so yeah it's great if you have you have a chance it's it is so like gritty 1970s in New York, and I love every minute of it. Uh, so Peter Stone, who wrote that movie, uh, pens the book for what was now known as 1776. Uh, Stone and Edwards took quotes from letters, essays, and many other sources and reworked those to fill out much of the dialogue for the show. So everything you hear in the show, in some way, uh, not every single thing, but a lot of what you hear in the show, in the movie, uh, a lot of that dialogue is literally taken from these people themselves. Um, I mean, Ben Franklin literally is just quoting himself half the time in this movie. But uh, I always thought that was, I actually never really knew that. And I think that's uh, a really cool little uh, uh, little factoid there about uh, the use of history and trying to, you know. Uh, rework it in a way that uh, makes it enjoyable. In fact, most of John and Abigail Adams's back and forth is actually taken directly from their correspondences to each other. Oh, interesting. Yeah. In real life, does she appear as though she were a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, she was just a ghostly apparition who would show oh, up every once in a while. She was John Adams's forced ghost, is what is really yeah. going on here. She'd just show up and be like, hello, yeah. the pins. Anyway, <laughs> that Adams was our last hope. Uh, the show opened in New York in 1969. It's an instant smash. It won the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for three years. Uh, much of the original cast even performed in the White House for then President Richard Nixon. 
We're going to talk about him a little more later on. Uh, in short, it was Hamilton before Hamilton. And one of the musical's most enthusiastic fans was Jack L. Warner of Warner Brothers Studio fame. One of the uh, founders. Oh, he sounds familiar. Yeah, a very familiar name who at this point had a massive falling out with his brothers. Uh, I think one of his brothers died a couple years before. And basically, in uh, I don't know the exact quote, but he did not attend his funeral. Uh, and basically said, I never cared for him. I did not like my brother. Like, publicly said that. Even wow. though, even though he got a, he showed off a letter from then-President uh, Dwight Eisenhower expressing his uh, remorse that his brother had died. So he showed off the letter saying, look at this guy saying, sorry for your loss, but fuck my brother. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> I know, uh, condolences for your brother dying. Did, did you know I know him? Right. Did you know I, I got I got a letter from the president? Maybe my other brother should die so I get another letter from the president. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Soon all of them will die. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Jack L. Warner, of course, yeah, Warner Brothers Studio. He's now producing independently with Columbia Pictures after selling off much of his stock or all of his stock uh, of the studio. Uh, Warner bought the rights for the film, uh, to film 1776, for $1.25 million and made sure that as much for the, of the rights, the rights to the film, yes. Wow, yeah, that's pretty expensive. He was obsessed with this musical. Apparently, he loved and and I think he only from My Fair Lady on. It's like My Fair Lady, and then he produces Camelot with his name attached to it, and then this, and then one other movie, which is not a musical. Uh, but yeah, he wanted to clearly bring back like I think he you know he's of that era of the bygone era where we're now in 1972. We're a full 20 years past really the heyday of the MGM musical Golden Age era. Uh, I think he's clearly trying to bring it back every time and it didn't quite do it. Um, My Fair Lady is the closest he got. But speaking of that. The reason he brings back almost all of the original cast for this movie, uh, the, all the original Broadway cast, is because one of his biggest regrets was that on My Fair Lady, he didn't cast Julie Andrews, who originated the role on Broadway, and went with Audrey Hepburn instead uh, to dig the knife a little deeper. Of course, Julie Andrews won Best Actress at the Oscars for Mary Poppins the year that Hepburn was nominated. So he vowed to never make that mistake again. And I guess he tried to do the same thing in Camelot, tried to get Julie Andrews and Richard Burton, and neither one could do it. So instead you uh, get Richard Harris, which I'm not complaining. Yeah. I, I love me some Richard Harris. Camelot? That's great. I love him. Camelot? I, yeah. The movie is you know, hit or miss, but he's I love Richard Harris in it. He's so great. You know, it seems a bit bizarre. Anyway. Because of that decision, the film features many character actors like William Daniels and Howard De Silva in leading roles, guys like Ken Howard getting their big break, or a lot of guys like Ron Holgate, who portrays Richard Henry Lee, David Ford, who plays John Hancock, uh, and Donald Madden, who plays John Dickinson, although Madden was not in the original Broadway production. All those guys are making their one and only appearance ever on the big screen. Uh, that was the case for a lot of other smaller roles as well. Some would do TV roles and stuff and work as theater actors, but uh, this was a lot of their big break, and that was it. And just to really hammer this uh, this point that these are not huge stars in this movie, apparently the highest maintenance cast member in the movie 
was a pig who appears very briefly in the streets of Philadelphia when John Adams and Ben Franklin go to visit Thomas Jefferson. That pig was Arnold Ziffel from TV's Green Acres. Ah, that's a charming-ass pig. Yeah. (laughs) The contract for this pig specified that he would be the last out of his air-conditioned trailer when cameras were ready to roll. That, according to Peter Hunt, the director of the movie. Nice. (laughs) One weird thing, uh, talking about some of the actors in this movie, because Howard De Silva... It caught my ear uh, being of Portuguese descent because De Silva is a Portuguese surname. Uh, Not Portuguese at all. Very weird. So he's actually born Silverblatt is his last name. And then when he changes his name, he just goes with a Portuguese last name to just be De Silva. It's it's very weird because, like, I know, like, actors change their names all the time, but they usually don't go for, like, an ethnic-sounding name. Mm -hmm. So that's... It was just weird, like at that time, to be like, "I'm going to be Howard Da Silva." Well, instead. I if don't he, know. I mean, he he wasn't a lot of uh, movies of the '40s and '50s, but I could also see, like, as a theater actor, I am a Da Silva. You know, it sounds more regal. I suppose, in a way. yeah. But you're right; uh, that is usually not the the direction they would go. Maybe a changing of the tides, a turning of the tides at this point. Yeah, because I was like, is he? I was like, is he Portuguese? Is he Brazilian? And I look him up, and it's like, oh no, his parents were Yiddish-speaking Jews, and born in <laughs> Russia. And I'm like, <laughs> definitely not. Where, where De Silva, yeah, where does Silva come from? What is yeah. this anyway? I mentioned the director Peter H. Hunt, who actually directed the stage musical. Uh, he's brought on to make his directorial debut. He only made a couple more movies in his career, never really took off, uh, continued directing stage musicals, including 1997's The Scarlet Pimpernel, and he directed a ton of TV, including episodes of Seventh Heaven and Baywatch, you know, those very similar television programs, Seventh Heaven and Baywatch. All right. Basically the same show. Uh, He actually just recently uh, passed away back in April, so... uh, He's uh, actually a very productive career for uh, Peter Hunt and uh, one of my absolute favorite musicals. William Daniels, uh, who, God, I, I love me some William Daniels. When I first found out, again, my whole childhood, I'm listening to this album. And when I first found out, I think I was in high school, that the guy who's John Adams in this movie is Mr. Feeney from Boy yeah. Meets World. Whew, I had I needed a day to recover from that. It was a lot and to it's, a lot and to it's Kit. And it's Kit. To so many to so many generations. He's he's either oh that's Kit or that's Mr. Feeney or that's uh Plastics. Ben Braddock's yeah. father from The Graduate, his plastic obsessed father. That was at that point his most notable role. Have you uh Well, that's interesting. He played John Adams twice. I was just about to mention his history, not only with John Adams, but portraying many, many other members of the Adams family. Thank you. Uh, No problem. Yeah, he would not only portray John Adams again in 1979, The Rebels. He plays John Quincy Adams, of course, John Adams' son, in 1976, The Adams Chronicles. And then he plays John Adams' cousin Samuel Adams in 1978's The Bastard. On top of all that, as Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World, he teaches at, you guessed it, John Adams High School. Beat that, Paul Giamatti. Dang. 
No disrespect to Paul Giamatti. He's, he's uh, ha- John Adams. Side note, complete uh, sidebar. Uh, have you gone back and watched any Boy Meets World in your adult life? Not really, to be honest. Don't. Don't okay then, fair enough. That's I've always it. heard that uh, Corey it comes off like a complete dick. Oh, it is. There, there are moments that are not just like bad that are that are unwatchable. That's uh, yeah. The only things that I see that go viral um, that warm my heart are the Feeny parts. William Daniels yeah. as Mr. Feeney is the saving oh, yeah. grace he's, of that show. He's the best part. Yes. But, the moral conscience of that entire show. I mean, that's his role, but that's uh, yeah. he does it so well. But yeah, just. Leave those good memories where they are. Don't, don't, don't overwrite them with new ones. Yeah, no, I didn't. I, I got to be honest. Uh, a rewatch of Boy Meets World was never really on the docket. Never was. I was more of a uh, on TGIF. Uh, I think I was more of a like a Family Matters, um, Full House, clearly, um, and then evolving into like uh, Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. Okay, weren't a Step by Step fan. I was into step by step. Okay. Uh, but I think, yeah. You gotta take it day by day. Yeah. You know? Step by step. Uh, Daniels, along with uh, co-star Ken Howard, by the way, both served as president of the Screen Actors Guild at one point in case uh, their political portrayals in this movie weren't enough. Uh, they had some aspirations uh, as union leaders outside of uh, the act of the uh, uh, the fictional world or the historical fictional world. So... Uh, and then I saw something that was like, Charlton Heston, who was also president of the Screen Actors Guild at one point, portrayed Andrew Jackson in a movie. And of course, real life President Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild at one point. What the, what are the odds of all of that? That seems, the Reagan one, sure, but the other three, it's just, it just seems a little, um, yeah. a little crazy and coincidental. But I do the third lead in the movie, the aforementioned Howard De Silva, who plays Ben Franklin, was nearly recasted by director uh, Peter Hunt because he was apparently very difficult to work with during the show's run on Broadway. De Silva begged to be in the movie so that his grandkids hmm. could have him have something to remember him by when he was gone. And I'm sure in part so that there would finally be recorded proof of his portrayal of Franklin because when the cast recorded the album... Uh, for the 1969 Broadway show, uh, De Silva suffered a mild heart attack and couldn't be there, so his understudy, Rex Everhart, who our generation knows better as the voice of Belle's crazy old father, Maurice, in Disney's Beauty and the Beast, he is the one heard on that album instead. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Everhart was also Hunt's original pick to portray Ben Franklin on screen. Also, Howard De Silva was in the blacklist. There you go. Pleaded yes. the fifth. Refuse to speak. Go to so, Silva. Comrade yeah. to Silva. A lot of comrades in the cast of this movie. And uh, Jack L. Warner, totally not that guy. <laughs> Despite his like obsession with this, it's, a, it's like this movie, I think, if you go into it not knowing what it is, you're going to say like, uh, do I really want this like overwhelming patriotism and like american this display of american exceptionalism like is that really what i want to sit through for the next three hours but you quickly come to realize uh that this is not that no this movie is a lot more tongue-in-cheek than i anticipated i came in expecting a very serious portrayal of 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 you know the time period 
with like with like old school musical songs. You know what I mean? That's what I expected. And no, that's not what. No, and I, to me, that's the charm of this musical, and that's why it works in my mind. Is yeah. it's just it it toes that line between irreverence and like total self seriousness really well. Uh, there are times where when it's serious, like you are in, and when it's being cheeky and fun, it's you're in. It works because yeah. they're just they're not deifying these guys. Like these yeah. are just people. Uh, there's even that line that Ben Franklin says later in the movie. He's like, uh, "Yeah, we're not demigods. Like we are just yeah. men trying to figure out the the beginnings of a nation. That's all we are." Did I expect? A whole scene where John Adams explains to Thomas Jefferson that he too likes to fuck. I did not expect that, <laughs> but that's but that's where we were. So good, so so good. Fire in his loins. Yeah, Wonderful. the way he says, "What is it? Combustibility." Yes. Mm. Mm, love it. Yeah, this movie has such a. Uh, uh, in, in times, it works to its detriment, but I think for the most part, it works. It feels like like they literally just took the stage version and plopped it on screen. Um, and there are some like, you know, creative liberties and camera tricks and and things to make it feel like a movie. But for the most part, that's what it is. It's just here's the version. Yeah, on a, lot of it, a lot of it takes place in the chambers. Yes, a lot of it. Also, one thing that threw me a little bit for a loop was there was a moment where I was like in, in the first third of the movie where I went. We've gone like 15, 20 minutes without a song here. <laughs> like uh, when we get into discussing the the plot points, I want to get your feel on that because okay. it is a t- it, every time I show people this movie, they always go, "Wow, this is uh when are they going to sing again? I thought this was a musical. Yeah. What's what's happening?" Because they 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 really front load like song 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 and then all of a sudden like yeah, nothing and then, for like a long and time. And then it just comes rapid fire for the last like 90 yeah. minutes of the movie. Yeah. Going back to some of the casting, one of the more notable casting changes would be Blythe Danner as Martha Jefferson, uh, who that role was originally portrayed by Broadway legend Betty Buckley, who goes on to originate the role of Grizabella in Cats years later. Of course, the famous song Memories. That was her. She won for she won ah. the Tony for that. Uh, Blythe Danner, of course, the mother of actress Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow was born two months ah. prior to this film's release. She looks exactly like Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. That is a good call. I didn't even like think yeah. of that. Yeah, that's exactly true. like her. So yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow was actually born two months prior to this film's release. So they probably filmed this movie maybe, I don't know, nine to ten months before. So uh, if you really want to get technical, yes, an embryonic Gwyneth Paltrow appears in this film. So. And she's stunning. Right? And, she's stunning. <laughs> and boy, is she stunning. Uh, on the latest issue of Goop. <laughs> she, yeah, she actually talks about how through the womb she actually uh, yeah, gave uh, that yeah. performance more gusto that it needed. Exactly. Uh, the shots outside of what becomes known many years later as Independence Hall, those are actually filmed on the Warner Ranch. I actually was commenting as I was watching it last night. I went... Boy, how are they? This is really spot on. Like, this looks really good. This is a good set. And I was like, this is clearly not like shot on location, but 
it would have me fooled if there was just a location that had this. Um, but yeah, it was just shot all on Warner Ranch. They built an almost exact replica of what Colonial Philadelphia streets looked like. Uh, unfortunately, the set all burned down a few years later after the film's release, so uh, it's all gone. Oh, what yeah. a shame. Finally, the film premiered at Radio City Music Hall and received positive reviews, but as I mentioned, a box office dud. Should have just kept that in the bank for summer of 1976. Would have been a smash. And to make things worse, Jack Warner's media tour didn't help his pet project. Uh, we mentioned uh, a lot of comrades on the in the cast of 1776. Yeah. Jack Horner was not one of them. In fact, in a rare interview on the Merv Griffin show, in a then 80-year-old Warner got off topic and ranted about the threat of, quote, pinko commies. De Silva was blacklisted. Jack Warner was uh, a part of, uh, you know, the guys trying to suss out uh, communism in Hollywood. That would also be the only television appearance of Jack Warner's career. One and done, baby. Wow. Yeah, you say pinko really commies. Really made it count. Get out of here. Really made that count. Yeah, it ain't 1952 anymore. It's 1972, you know. it's That doesn't fly as well. And it's not yeah. 1982 where that probably would uh, would gain steam again. I feel like that'd be like someone showing up like in the 90s on David Letterman and being like these hippies and be like and being serious about? about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone's like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. What you, what year do you think this is?" Yeah. Someone get his nurse. Like complain about Gen X or something. Like, uh, what is this? Yeah. It makes no sense. No. Or like if I went on television right now and I was just like, Limp Biscuit <laughs> Destroying the youth with their nookies. <laughs> Try mm. to get that cookie. Does anyone know what that actually means? If you knew, you'd be horrified. Yes. Just reminds me of the, what is the Chappelle joke? When if when white people find out what skeet, skeet, skeet means, they're all going to oh, yeah, be. <laughs> yeah. They're all going to be very upset. Yeah. Um, just like with Nookie. It's the same thing. That's like if I want to go on TV and complain about how Kid Rock is... Oh, wait, never mind. That's still going on. Okay. Huh. Yeah. All right, never mind. That one still stands. Yeah, things haven't really changed. In, in, in a way, things nothing has changed. Oh, yep. well. Uh, let's talk about the Pinko Commies that uh, started the American Revolution. Uh, let's start yeah. off uh, with a grand overture. Uh, as you see, like uh, I love the, the overture of this movie where you're seeing the title card and this... Uh, big drawing of like a, a day in Philadelphia uh, in 1776 and it's the summer uh, it's June of that year we begin with John Adams at the top of the bell tower at the congressional John Farm. Adams <laughs> sorry <laughs> every time his name comes up I'm just oh like... I know we begin with him at the top of the bell tower of the uh, Congressional Hall in Philadelphia. He's notified by Congressional custodian Andrew McNair that a vote is about to take place on whether or not the Rhode Island militia should have matching uniforms. Uh, the contempt in William Daniels' voice. Uh, the first of many, good God. I was going to say... I completely forgot. I was going to start this podcast with good God. Good uh, God, man. So great. And again, we talk about how this is like you're just taking the stage version and putting it on screen. It feels like if everybody in this musical on stage was a 10, they brought it down to maybe a 7 for this. Yeah. And it's if they had pumped it to an 8, it maybe it doesn't work. That it's just too much. It's too hammy. It, but... The fact that it's like it's still big, but 
those those good gods are not like good god it's just good yeah. god uh yeah. it works perfectly yeah uh yeah because if you hear the uh give the broadway soundtrack a listen some of those good gods are like just huge yells <laughs> they're wonderful oh i love it john adams storms in and roasts everyone immediately maybe the best line in the whole movie and it happens within four minutes uh, one useless man is called a disgrace, two are called a law firm, and three or more become a congress. Uh, yeah. True words have never been spoken, my friend. There's a few great liners in this movie, I gotta There's, say. There are so many good lines in this movie. This, again, for a guy who was mostly, I mean, good mysteries and thrillers. Uh, but for a guy who was mostly doing that, it's like a, like, holy shit, there's a lot of just wonderful nuggets in this movie so many great little lines and again when you're i guess when you're plucking them from the founding fathers in a lot of ways and reworking them then i guess it is gonna come off as more uh you know it's gonna come off profound profound and more highfalutin i guess i guess it's gonna be a byproduct of that so so john tells everybody that and the rest of congress basically just tells John to shut the fuck up and sit down, John, the first number of the musical, which bleeds into Piddle, Twiddle, and Resolve until then. Uh, this is such a great opening number. Uh, it's, it's so much fun. It's uh, ridiculous. William Daniels is great. And, of course, the song is referenced, actually, in Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's the beginning, I think, of one of the freestyle of the, the battles. Where he says, "Sit down, John. You, you know, you motherfucker, or something like that. I can't remember the exact line. Yeah, um, you fat mother. <laughs> yeah, you fat mother. Yeah, exactly. Love this song. Uh, just hot as hell in Philadelphia. When you know, it's it's more like, I guess, what like eighty six degrees in those clothes. He's hot as hell. Oh, horrendous. Yeah. As a person who runs warm, ninety nine percent of the time." I, I sympathize with the people tell, saying to open a fucking window. <laughs> I gotta say, <laughs> I'm the I'm the person in the household who's like, "Hey, did we turn the AC on yet?" And everyone's like, "What? Why?" And I'm like, mm, "It's hot." Same. I'm the yeah. same way. I'm the same way. I need a window open. Uh, yeah, it, a part of me uh, definitely sympathizes with uh, these do nothing lazy Congress people. John steps out, starts to, you know, curse God above. Uh, in Piddle, Twiddle, and Resolve. Uh, and eventually it leads to one of the many, uh, one of, uh, of a few, I should say, scenes where they are depicting a back and forth between John and his wife, Abigail, uh, who is back home in Massachusetts watching their children who... They're extremely sick children. Who all have dysentery, <laughs> like you mentioned uh, earlier. They they uh, are all really, really sick and dying, and John just goes, who fucking cares? What else is yeah. new? <laughs> do, do something with that sick child, but I need gunpowder. Pronto. So it was very funny. She's just like, oh, and then, you know, measles and chicken pox and yeah, everything it's, else. It's, it's such a great line, uh, madam, what else is new? Uh, I, I love that whole thing. And again, this whole balance of uh, irreverence and that song ends on such a beautiful high note uh, of that just swelling end of the song um, where we hear that recurring theme throughout uh, the yours, yours, yours that we hear later on and uh, as a reprise. It's such a beautiful end. And then uh, as he sits down, defeated outside of those halls in hot as hell Philadelphia. 
Next day, John Adams goes to Ben Franklin to lament Congress's inaction on the fight against Britain in the pursuit of independence. What an introduction for a Mr. Ben Franklin. It makes mm -hmm. me giggle every time. Him just sitting there with uh, getting his portrait done. What does he say that uh, Adams comments that the, the painting is no good? And then he says, well, the model is no Venus. So I, just, I yes. love it. So great. Uh, even Adams makes reference to the fact that he's always quoting himself. And I, I just love it all. He says, like, don't quote yourself to me. He's all, but that was a new one. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Just, yeah, as a that. guy, it's, it's, if you're into history, American history, I'm just like, mm, 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 I love this stuff. It's just it's like catnip to me. So Franklin tries to calm Adams down, again, using many of his famous quotes and colloquialisms, uh, which Adams doesn't have the patience for. And Adams quickly realizes that they'll need somebody less partisan, less uh, obnoxious and disliked, as he put it, to bring forth the motion to vote on independence. Ben Franklin is way ahead of him as the goofiest man in Congress, Richard Henry Lee, gallops towards them to meet with Franklin. Adam scoffs at the idea uh, that Richard Henry Lee would be the one to propose independence. But once Lee becomes privy to what this meeting with Ben Franklin is all about, he's on board and he makes a plea as to why he's the perfect choice to bring forth the motion for independence in the song, The Lees of Old Virginia. I, this is another just super fun song. This goofy, lanky man who oh god who's the actor i'm thinking of who every time i see him he reminds me uh british comedian steve coogan i always think of steve coogan when i see this guy he just looks he looks like him he acts That's like good. him he's such a goofball i love him I, I absolutely love richard henry lee in this movie and i love the song by the way ron holgate the actor who portrays him uh, never rode a horse, horse before but does all of his own horse riding Minus, of course, that big uh, stunt leap mount onto the horse near the end of the song, which very impressive. Yes. Also, Paul, that fountain in the middle. Did that fountain yes. look familiar to you? Is that the Friends fountain? Yes, it is. That is indeed <laughs> the Friends fountain. I could not believe it. The one that people think actually exists in New York? It, yeah, it doesn't exist. In fact... It was just sitting out somewhere on the Warner Ranch. From th That whole set gets destroyed, except that fountain. And it's the one surviving relic, and now uh, immortalized for forever and ever and ever, uh, thanks to friends. So after that glorious romp with uh, the congressman from Virginia, the next day we enter the Congressional Hall as a new delegate from Georgia, Mr. Lyman Hall, makes his way in and meets the many colorful characters of Congress. There's local drunkard Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island. Very funny. I love me some Stephen Hopkins. Two big mugs of rum to start off his day. It's good for your heart. Jump starts the heart in the morning. I love that he's like, hey, you, can't your heart. you should know that as a doctor. <laughs> Nothing but respect for my president, <laughs> Mr. Stephen Hopkins. Uh, also, that great moment in this scene where it starts off with uh, the uh, state of Rhode Island for the next three days. All bars and uh, distilleries will be closed for the next three days. And the look on his face, his face just goes pale. Oh, what would he think right now? 
Ooh. Oh, yeah. Stephen Hopkins would probably be. He would not handle this well. Damn. It's interesting to think that it, who of these founding father types, again, these people that this movie does not do, but many of us in society and in history books DFI. How would they be reacting to this current to this current moment? And the the answer for Stephen Hopkins is he would be that guy uh, strapped with a, with an AK forty seven, uh, screaming, "Let me eat chicken tenders at Applebee's yeah. right now!" So we so Stephen Hopkins, uh, one of my favorites, surly Irishman Thomas McKean. Also love that this is still an era where McKean, as far as I looked up, born in America, but. He had a thick, thick, surly Irish accent, um, both of his parents being Irish immigrants. Um, uh, yeah, still a time where, you know, all so many American born citizens are still like British accents or Irish accents or even just trying to keep appearances. And it's not quite that mid-Atlantic accent, but they are definitely trying to preserve a sort of dialect that is more proper to the uh, con- this country that uh, we're trying to establish here, or, you know. Yeah, um, just trying to keep appearances when you know it's all it's all a farce. And of course, I speaking of that, uh, we meet the delightfully devilish John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. You want to talk about a guy who just chews up the screen? This oh my god. John Dickinson, uh, the actor who plays him, uh, what was the name again? Uh, Donald Madden, who, again, this is his only film appearance ever. Interesting. Is he, uh, was he Broadway? He did a lot of theater, did a lot of Broadway. He was, did Hamlet and did Shakespeare, um, which maybe should not be a surprise at all. Yeah. He has a lot of uh, boastful scenes yeah. in this film. Again, he just loves he, the the camera loves him darling uh he he just eats this up it's so good and i eat it up i love i love it every time he's on screen and i always said uh when i was uh still doing musicals or wanting to do more musicals i always said god if i were ever in the show i would just oh, the chance to be john dickinson would be so much fun hmm. to be that just devilish It'd be great also, Ben Franklin arrives, being carried by a couple prisoners in a large basket. <laughs> Back to prison now with you. <laughs> so good. Of course, he has gout. Everything about him is so ridiculous. Gout, the rich man's disease. And the uh, I like how they, they completely lean into how lecherous he was. Just like the first thing he does, he goes, oh, hello, ladies. <laughs> just, yes. Oh. It's so much fun to get the whole not deifying them. There's a line later on where uh, John Hancock, uh, the president of the of, of Congress there, uh, has a report about his son. And he's like, uh, do you know the whereabouts of your son? Like, huh? Uh, no, I don't care. I don't give a shit about yeah. my son. That bastard, that traitorous bastard. He literally calls his son a bastard. It's great. Yeah. yeah we really get the full like 18th century congressional experience here. Uh, Thomas Jefferson gives a weather report, which uh, apparently is what he did. That was one of his roles early on in Congress was that he would be the one to read the temperature, give you the wind, uh, and basically predict how the rest of the day was going to go. And he would keep it in his diary. Uh, apparently on July 4th, 1776, it was 76 degrees. Wouldn't you know it? Oh. Yeah. According to Jefferson's diaries. Like I said, Ben Franklin calls his traitorous son a bastard. 
And before they can debate more frivolity, as it's starting off with just more frivolous bullshit, Richard Henry Lee barges in that afternoon after successfully ensuring that Virginia is all aboard for American independence and puts forth a proposal. Let the debate begin. Now, Paul... I could just go on and give you all of the little plot details of this scene, but uh, this goes on. This whole scene from when we meet, who would it be, the uh, Lyman Hall, to our next song. How long would you guess that whole ex- this scene is? I, I guess 20 minutes. It's 41 minutes long. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. Now, okay, Cody, one thing I did say to myself after watching this film today was, I hope Cody is a fan of Cliff's Notes, because the idea that he would bring apart every single minutia of this movie scared me, because I thought, am I going to have to clear my schedule for the next couple days to record this <laughs> podcast? Um, well, Paul, I'm here to tell you, uh, I've actually already taken it upon myself to call in sick for work for the next two days. So okay. uh, buckle up, baby. We're going to be here for a while. This is probably a two or three parter. No, I'm, I'm, see, I would not uh, do that. And at this point, the vote was seven to five. Uh, but then <laughs> after some choice words from the people of Philadelphia. See, it's easy uh, to go over plot by plot point when you're talking about, oh, I don't know, take me out to the ball game or uh, uh, even the Wizard of Oz. But um, when we are meticulously debating the... Uh, uh, the pros and cons of American independence by a bunch of highfalutin yeah. and fancy talking uh, Congress people. Well, it's a little harder to summarize all of yeah. that. Okay, so let's go. Let's go over the the broad strokes here. So, the people who are against it most seem to be because they don't think they can win. Yeah, as exa- opposed exactly. to as opposed to an actual more. There's only a couple of them. Uh, Especially, uh, as you mentioned, uh, what is it, Dickinson? Yeah, Dickinson is he's the very leader much of like, the pack. hey, we're great. Like, we're fine. The England's awesome. Like, he's he's the one who's like, England's great. Other people are more like, well, what's the point of doing this if we're just going to lose and then be branded as traitors? Like, it seems kind of dumb to do such a thing. Exactly. That's that's really the heart of it. And uh, obviously, this is. Uh, I, I would say for this scene. That after about 20 minutes into this debate, I think there are two ways your mind goes if you're watching this movie. One, am I stuck here? Is this going to be the rest of my life? When does the musical start again? Or two, if you're a cuckoo bird like me, who just, again, this is catnip, uh, completely engrossed. I'm gazing at amazement of all of these stage actors just again just chewing up the scenery. Oh, from from that, you know me, Cody. You know this yeah. from my movie from when we did the movie podcast, The Screen Watchers Guild, still available to download. Um, you know how much I love a good scenery chew. So for me, I was enjoying this fully. I didn't even think like I said, I said I thought it lasted twenty minutes. I didn't think it lasted that long. Yeah. However, there was a point in the middle when just like my brain kicked in and went, wait a minute, but where is the music? Because, I mean, like, I was fully enjoying it, but at some point, you know, I had to realize what was happening here. It's a lot of uh, a big, you know, boisterous debating. Uh, They tiptoe that line between, like, melodramatic and soul-stirring, I think, perfectly. Yeah, this is legitimately a quarter of the actual runtime of the movie. 
I'm wondering how much of this is like simplistic versions of what each state was thinking at the time. I totally think that's what it is. It's a summary because, again, there's what there's 50 actual members of Congress during this time. And there's not there's half of that, if that yeah. maybe less than half of that that are represented in this scene. So I, I think uh, you're right. Who's the, who's the other uh, snidely whiplash dude who uh, who's like, I just want to make sure states rights are are invested. Hmm. Oh, would that be South Carolina's Edward Rutledge? Yes. Yes. Who, yes. A, another devious character who is all uh, who is really the representation of the deep south's doubts and concerns about declaring independence. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, come to a head really at the end of the movie. Yeah, the, all all of the characters uh, are on full display here. Again, our our favorite local drunkard, uh, Stephen Hopkins, at one point is gone and then brings in his dog. <laughs> That's the best part is when things start getting totally out of control, John Hackett is just yelling, get that damn dog out of here. <laughs> People are flailing canes at each other. Oh, that's That's, yeah, when everything really comes to a head where Dickinson and Adams are going back and forth. Lawyer! Landlord! That's, dude, calling him a landlord. It's 1972, and he's calling him a landlord as an insult. Just, oh, God bless all the people who worked on this musical. So that's where, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Dickinson and Adams, their debate turns into a cane fight. Which, by the way, if you listen to the Dollop podcast that's on a real History, thing. That's not, yeah, this, this this happened a lot of times where people got into straight up, got like, yeah, there was a cane fight. In yeah. The, in, and like, I, you know what I, you know what I say, Cody? Good old days. That's what I say. Bring it back. I mean, yeah. you even see like those videos of parliament. Like yeah. it's, we are so tame and uh, really lack of a better term, we're kind of neutered when it comes to these, con- these debates on the congressional floor. Like if people yeah. just really dug in and just said, you know, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're cool, but fuck you. I'm out. <laughs> then things I would be better. Time, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Time, fuck you. If more people were like that guy who just spoke that truth to the LAPD chief, God, shit might get done in Congress. All I'm going to say is maybe you might not filibuster if you feel like a cane might go flying swatting into your face at some point. Right. Exactly. And boy, how satisfying would it see, would it be to see a cane just knock a couple teeth out of Mitch McConnell's mouth? Just the slow motion of his turkey neck waving in the wind from, from the hit. His dentures just fly across the room. That's going to calm me more than counting sheep when I have a hard time sleeping at night. Just that image of Mitch McConnell losing a couple of uh, chompers from a cane. And then I was attacked uh, while I was hanging out. As a, I feel like it was not necessary for him to do that. <laughs> so this cane fight, it, it comes to a head, but the uh, weakened Caesar Rodney of Delaware breaks up the fight. And again, saying, the enemy's not in here, it's out there. Uh, and that's where his health, he's, he's fighting cancer, as we find out. His health gets the best of him. He must depart in that 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 line, I leave you a divided Delaware. Just so great uh, as he as he steps out. So now things are split, and much to Adams's displeasure, later on Congress agrees that if things are going to be split, uh, the vote for independence must be unanimous. 
So to buy time, Adams and Ben Franklin proposed that there should be, oh, I don't know, some sort of written statement of independence, a uh, uh, a declaration, if oh. you will. Oh, a declaration of independence. Well, that rolls off the tongue. I was so happy when he was like, what kind of declaration? He did not say a declaration of independence. Yes. Yeah. I was very happy that didn't happen. They did not do that. They just like tiptoed around it the whole time and never dove right in for the yeah. easy thing. So, yes, at this point, okay, the declaration, fine. If you need to do that, John Hancock agrees that, yes, we need more time. He appoints John Adams, Ben Franklin, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, and Richard Henry Lee to head up uh, the committee. By the way, the declaration, the independence, it all. It's a, this is able to happen because suddenly New Jersey shows up out of nowhere, which yeah. I guess that was a thing back then. They're just like, oh, we got lost on our way. We ended up in a barn. But uh, this is where the government of the, this country is happening, not with a bunch of yep. you know billy goats. That's what happens. Carter. This is how things happen back then. This is how the country was made. So, yes, at that point, uh, that is the committee. But Richard Henry Lee declines the invite because he's got to go be governor of Virginia, which... Um, when was that going to come up? You know, when were you going to tell everybody, old uh, uh, Dicky yeah. boy? Well, he's got to go govern. Uh, Jefferson's got to go plow his wife. There's a whole lot that's going on here. Again, Adams has got that fire in his loins the whole time. At least the man has some self-restraint, though. Yes. So that's good. Somebody needs to. So, yes, by default, as you mentioned, Thomas Jefferson is brought on, much to his displeasure, as, uh, yeah, he's trying to go home and get it in. Yes. But he can't. So at that point, oh my god, a song! There's a song! An actual song comes up. And uh, after nearly 45 songless minutes, uh, a very fun number. But Mr. Adams. What is the little uh, refrain that uh, that Adams says? Every time he conv- he's trying to convince the next person they have to be the one to write it, he goes like, you know, it can't be me because if they do, they will... Uh, they will shoot through my writing like a quill through whatever. Yeah. And then, and then he goes to the next person and he says it again. And then it, like, it's like a little refrain. Anyway, I enjoyed it. Yes, it's great. Okay. Not speaking highly of himself. He's putting himself down and saying, look, I can't do it. Nobody, no one likes me. I am just a piece of shit. Uh, you got to do it. People like you, you know, you or like with Franklin, he said, you are uh, the most witty, witty man in Congress. It has to be you. And then uh, for Roger Sherman, you, you're not a con, you're uncontroversial. Uh, for, for all these guys, there's all these different reasons. And then finally, it lands on Thomas Jefferson, uh, played by the extremely tall and very handsome Ken Howard. Ah, there we go. Whereas if I'm the one to do it, they'll, they'll run, run their, their quill, quill pens, pens through it. it. He's obnoxious and disliked. Did you know that? That's the part. Oh, yeah. He says that after every person he talks to. Yeah. Yes. I like that. It's good. So uh, at that point, it's, it is all up to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, of course, Ken Howard, by the way, to, to many people, many a uh, few years later, uh, most famous as The White Shadow. Uh, a basketball uh, show that uh, was uh, fairly successful, uh, a, where he played a, a basketball coach for a predominantly black inner city high school. I always heard about it in like uh, the sports radio circles. The older radio hosts were always like, White Shadow, that was my shit, good show. So I have to get around to watching that one. Jefferson saying, leave me alone, got to go to my wife. Uh, the, the great line, but I burn, Mr. Ray. So do I, Mr. J. And all the men are just like, huh? What? You do? It's like, do you guys want to talk about this somewhere else? You guys- right. It seems a little personal. Um, also, I always get a kick out of the three other Congress people 
with a little la 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 just bouncing very lightly and then doing the little can can down the stairs and it's great love this number super super fun i can rob through cupid's grove with great agility but life is more than sexual combustibility and he literally does the ba-ba with his hand like and he's like bustability <laughs> bustability yes. <laughs> Great, great, great stuff. By the end of it, Thomas Jefferson is reluctantly on board. Uh, he begins writing to no avail. Adams and Franklin decide to go check on him the next day, find him unshaven, or a few days later, maybe. They find him unshaven and It's a week, around. isn't it? It's been about a week. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, because he goes, it's seven days? Yes. <laughs> He's like, you haven't written anything in seven days? And then, of course, he kind of gestures to all the piles of, of papers yeah. discarded on the floor. He's like, where's the rest of it? He's like, yeah, there you go. All over here. The best is when John Adams picks up one and starts reading us. Oh, this isn't good at all. Yeah, this is, this is not good. Wonderful. Uh, but to inspire his friend, Adams has sent for Thomas Jefferson's wife to visit him. And uh, the, I love John Adams being like, please introduce me to your wife, Thomas, or Jefferson. And Van Frank was like, just leave them. Let them, yeah. let them do their business. And that line of uh, where Adams realizes that they're about to do the deed. He's like, in the afternoon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sky rockets in flight. Which I think what Franklin responds, not everyone's from Boston, John. Yeah, oh, which is a very weird inside. That's a very inside 18th century history joke, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. No, well, no, like, because at the time, Boston is seen as like high society, Harvard. Oh, uh, okay. That so makes I sense, think then. that's what it is. It, it, I saw, you know, oh man, what times have changed. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Boston still remains the most uh, influential place. All the most influential people come from Boston. What are you talking By about? By the way, the that just reminds me uh this is super off topic but uh, i was rewatching django unchained and i forgot how fucking funny that line is uh where they're talking about like accents being hard to understand and leonardo dicaprio goes oh i can't even spend a week in boston <laughs> and i was like that's so funny that's so funny so, yes, at this point, uh, they let their lovers do their deed, and uh, John is uh, a little uh, weary, a little uh, missing the action, a little jealous, I think, of his friend Thomas Jefferson that he gets to relieve the fire in his loins. And uh, John Adams daydreams about seeing his wife back home in Massachusetts as the two of them lament about how horny they are in a much more elegant way than just saying it like that. And uh, the yes. song, Yours, Yours, Yours. His wife, La Llorona. <laughs> <laughs> the ghost. Yes, the ghostly apparition uh, that is Abigail Adams uh, speaking longingly uh -huh. of, of having him at his bed at their bed. By the way, the whole, hey, why don't you come over here too? She's like, well, I would, but the children are dying, John. Uh, <laughs> Remember those kids? John. Dysentery? Yeah. Get with the picture, buddy. Actually, there's there's still sick, more sick even. Um <laughs> but sure, well, I'll bake your gunpowder if you really want me uh, to. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to go over there and jump your bones, John. Nothing would make me feel greater. However, the children are dying. So <laughs> Let me love deal with that. Love that opening line of this song. I live like a nun in a cloister. And then I live like a monk in an abbey. Beautiful song. Uh, yeah. They're they're wonderful together. 
makes me makes me gives me goosebumps every time. Next day, we find Adams at the bottom of Jefferson's stairwell where he has fallen asleep. Franklin finds him there as they await Jefferson, but it's his wife Martha that first appears as she opens the window and they finally get the first look at her face. Uh, the two formally introduce themselves, saying, we met you yesterday. Also, Ben Franklin, not once but twice being introduced as the inventor of the stove. Yes. It's, it's great. I like, he says it himself. That's my favorite part. Yes. I yes. invented the stove. <laughs> hey, you know what? Although, although, that's a flex. I'm sorry. Yeah. Honestly, kind of a big one. Like, it's one thing if it's like, you know, I invented like the ball on a stick, that you, the paddle ball or something. It's like, yeah. great, dude. But you invented the stove. You get to say that. Like, yeah. You get to put that at the top of your resume for life. And, you know, all of that American independence thing, blah, 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 blah. But the. Yeah. It, Paul, what's a bigger. Uh, highlight of ben franklin's resume the stove or american independence i think there's a good argument to be made for the stove let's see how this year shakes out cody (laughs) (laughs) hindsight's a great 2020 vehicle say that much thank you quite literally 2020 all right uh you like that yes very nice very nice double entendre combustibility if you will So at this point, yes, they both introduce themselves. She hurries down the stairs going, oh, my God, it's John Adams and and, uh, Ben Franklin. Of course I know who you are. I'm sorry. Adams asks what she sees in a man like Thomas Jefferson, such a quiet man, you know, isn't speaking at a million miles an hour like everyone should be, like a man like John Adams from Boston. But she describes that there's much more to Thomas Jefferson in the song. He plays the violin. Uh, plays her violin more like it. That's right. There's that that's really what the point we're getting to right here. This song was great. I thought it was so funny. Just it's funny because I feel like John Adams is like, oh look at these 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 horny beasts. How dare they? Yet he's the one whose mind is constantly going into the gutter this whole time. That's true. Yeah. And then what after he plays the violin? <laughs> what does he do? Well, then we dance. Oh. All right. They're all <laughs> acting very naturally like, hey, it's you know, sex is just a natural part of life. There's no big deal. Like these urges are very real. Whereas Adams is, uh, yeah, you're right. Mm. He's the one really with his mind in the gutter. Yeah, he's the one fanning himself. My dear. Yeah. My dear Lord. <laughs> Good God. Yeah. Dear God. Dear God. Yeah. Again, Blythe Danner was not in the original uh, Broadway production of this. Personally, I prefer the Broadway version of this song. It's mm, really good. Uh, let's if you hear it, there ain't that much controversy. Let's be honest. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's still a lovely song uh, and a fun moment where the two, in a way, it's like John is getting like he hasn't had the touch of a woman in so long, and just even the very innocent dancing um, is is something that gets him almost a little worked up. So a, a bit of a respite for every man involved here to to just have a frolic. With uh, a lovely woman who happens to be their friend's wife, which, uh, hey, just just some just some harmless dancing. That's all. Yeah. Uh, after that, uh, yeah. Well, well, God, I didn't get the line, but uh, basically, Ben Franklin is talking about how. Uh, basically, he's talking about how he's got erectile dysfunction, and so uh, you gotta love a movie where Ben Franklin makes fun of his <laughs> makes fun of his limp junk. I'm yeah. into that. Later on, Adams and Franklin return to Congress in an effort to convince some of the nays to switch to yay for independence, but with no success. 
They're interrupted with another depressing dispatch from General George Washington on the battlefield. This time alerting Congress that lawlessness and sexual deviance is afoot in New Brunswick. Adams is tasked with setting things right with those troops. Uh, and he brings along Maryland Samuel Chase, who himself is on the fence about independence, but says if he knew they were going to win, I'm all for it. So he says, come along. You're coming with me. We're going to put those men in order and you're going to see f that these guys can win. I, I guarantee it. So he brings him along and Ben Franklin, uh, who's convinced to uh, go. I love the, the bit where he's totally asleep. And then uh, uh, Stephen Hopkins is like, uh, he's like, what? What New Brunswick? Ams goes, uh, we're going to New Brunswick. Well, what for? Uh, for the whoring and drinking. And he doesn't even hesitate, just gets right up. <laughs> yeah. Adams leaves, as does Franklin, and suddenly a quiet. A hush over Congress as John Dickinson rejoices in the sudden peace and calm upon their departure in the song Cool, Cool, Considerate Men. So as mentioned for this for this podcast, maybe we didn't mention this. Uh, we decided to watch the director's cut of the film, which I think is actually now the most widely available version of this movie. The original cut is two hours, 21 minutes. The, the director's cut is two hours 45 minutes and one of the biggest cuts in the movie is this song interesting a not so subtle dig at conservative politics and of course this is written mm. 1969 this is written at the heart of the anti-war movement the civil Summer rights love, movement baby. yeah it's yeah it's, it's all of the, it's there's a lot of political uncertainty uh social uh, upheaval and this is a direct dig at the despite it being the summer of love how suddenly one of the more conservative regimes in white house history is now stepping in to take over richard nixon and, and his uh, cronies so the song doesn't make the theatrical cut originally because of hey that guy i just mentioned richard nixon it was essentially a presidential veto on his part so Jack Warner showed the original cut of the film to his good friend, Richard Nixon. Shocker, Jack Warner and Richard Nixon, good buddies. Ah. Yeah. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Except we all did from about a million miles away. Yes. Then President of the United States, who, as we talked about, uh, had already welcomed the original cast uh, of the Broadway show in 1970. Apparently, at that time, Nixon's staff asked that the cast cut that song from future productions uh and they said no not gonna do it not gonna happen but now with his friend at the helm of the movie nixon once again asked for the song to get the axe so when director peter hunt was off on vacation warner had it cut out and got any trace of the number removed from trailers and advertising it was apparently like the centerpiece of all of the trailers Wow. Yeah, and they just erased it. He even tried to destroy the original negative of the scene. Jesus. Yeah. Calm down. But God bless this film editor. A film editor hid it in storage from him and kept it away there, and then they restored it uh, in the early 2000s, and it's now the version you see today. In a 2015 interview, Peter Hunt mentioned that Warner, uh, on his deathbed, mentioned that one of his greatest regrets was cutting the number from the movie as it made it feel disjointed. Again, speaks to how much this man despised his family and his brothers 
Now I'm not going to think about, you know, the relatives maybe I'll see in the afterlife or all the people that I've wronged and maybe I regret. Nope. I'm going to think about that scene I cut out from a movie that ended up being a box office flop. That's what I'm going to think about as I leave this world into the next life. Also, the reasoning he gives. It's not because it was wrong to cut it out. Not because it was, you know, censorship. Uh, because it made the movie feel a little disjointed. Yeah. He said the flow of the movie it, it was off yeah. after that. <laughs> what a guy. What a dick. You see, now I know why those freedom-fighting terrorists were, were going against the lot the whole time. You know, those Animaniacs. Now I get it. <laughs> now I get it. You know? We should be giving the yeah. Animaniacs a medal of freedom, is what you're Comrade saying. Comrade Yakko. Comrade Wacko and Comrade Dot. And Comrade Sister Dot. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Pinky and the Brain maybe uh, can get like a Nobel Prize for science down the road. There you go. Yeah. I, I love this number. It's crazy it was cut because it, it may be my favorite in the in the movie. This is, to me, one of the most uh, Hamilton, like one of the things I can see that inspired Hamilton. Because Hamilton has those great parts where the they have the background dancers that like like they all kind of like in unison spin around you know and like freeze frame at times and do and that's what this reminded me of when they're all and especially with the lighting and everything like the lighting goes a little darker i really yeah. that's yeah that's that that was the part where i went this is definitely okay i see what's happening here yeah it's you definitely get the hamilton influence or the the influence on hamilton i should say yeah that whole scene is so good when they slow everything down and they're reading off the message from george washington once again saying things are going bad and they're just dancing and ignoring it and going whatever no big deal we have our land our cash in hand just wonderful can't even I cannot imagine this movie without it. Really, it's 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 funny. It's epic. It's it can be stirring at times. It's one of my favorites. So as Congress departs, the young courier who delivered Washington's dispatches joins Congressional Custodian Andrew McNair, which I love that this movie um, treats him as like a fully as like a fully fleshed out character. Just the guy who is just puts the pen the the feathers in the in the ink and um, like. You know, could have just been this throwaway character, and I think he's totally given his just due throughout the movie. I love that. So the two of them are sitting as he's talking to this young courier about life on the battlefield. What has he seen? What has he heard? And it starts off with this young man sort of almost laughing about what he's seen, and it quickly uh, he realizes the severity and the seriousness of what he's seeing. And it's such a this this whole next number, Mama Look Sharp. Is such a stark contrast. Like, that's the thing with cutting out cool, considerate men. The impact of this number would not hit nearly as hard if you don't have cool, considerate men before it. Where you have all of these guys who are up at the top in their ivory towers just going, dance with us, who cares? Like, just let things be. And then you have this young man talking about the horrors that he has seen on the battlefield as these boys are dying for independence. The song is really beautiful. And I love the way it's shot. It's really somber and, and it really is effective. Uh, this is also one where I'd say uh, uh stage version is one I probably prefer as well. But uh, in, in a way, I like that this like he just sounds like a kid, like this guy who's singing it. 
He doesn't sound like, like he sounds good, but like not like you know like some refined professional singer. Like he's just literally a guy from the battlefield reciting exactly what he's seen. Fast forward now to June 28th, where the first draft of the Declaration of Independence is being read to Congress. Adams and Franklin arrive, uh, praising the troops that they met in New Brunswick, uh, who are a bit disorganized, but when motivated, are unstoppable to a flock of ducks overhead <laughs> that they shot with precision. We got them now, boys. The way they shot those ducks, we're in. Fantastic. Those redcoats are going to be running to their mamas. Uh, Jefferson tells them that the declaration is being read when they arrive, and then the men envision a future of their soon-to-be independent nation in the song The Egg, which starts off with the three of them debating what should be the national bird. Adams, an eagle, Jefferson, a dove, and Ben Franklin says the turkey. Um, An eagle. Yeah, the eagle. Very forceful. Imagine if Ben Franklin had his way, which uh, I don't know how well known this fact is. I think it's pretty well known at this point that Ben Franklin, like a little nugget of trivia about America, that Ben Franklin was very, very much into having the turkey, like fought hard for it, that the turkey should be the national bird uh, of America. And imagine if he got his way. I'd say it would be a whole lot more humble, Cody. Am I thinking about that too much? Am I digging into that too much? Like, I don't know, things would have been the way they are in a lot of ways, but I think it would have made us a more humble nation. I think so. I think people would have sat there and been like, you know what? Look at the noble turkey. <laughs> noble turkey. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's, it's about a guy who, the, the bird is the first one that is used for sustenance um, of yeah. Native Americans and of the first Americans that came to, um, to this uh, country. And uh, almost a bird that brings together people rather than... One that kills, yeah. like the bald eagle. Yeah, sometimes it's a little dry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but it makes uh, great for those sandwiches the day after uh, with some cranberry and some stuffing. Oh, don't threaten me with a good time, Cody. I say normalized cranberry sauce year-round. Amen. And stuffing, for that matter. One day I got I to gotta steal some... Well, that is, I got to stop myself from eating all mine when I get it from Thanksgiving. My aunt makes a wonderful cranberry sauce where she actually makes it with figs as well. Oh, hello. And and uh, port wine. Oh, my goodness. It oh, my gracious. Fantastic. Dear God, I might say. <laughs> It'll make you say, dear God. Dear God. I'm going to do that at Thanksgiving this year. I'm just going to. If we have Thanksgiving. Good God. Yeah, I know. Who, who knows? Who knows if we'll have that glorious bird. To me, in my heart, the turkey will always be the national bird of America. Damn right. Also, it made me laugh. This is just the thought in my head. You know those like those super garish shirts of like like a, a waving American flag with like a, the head of an eagle and I don't know, some other thing like a motorcycle yeah. or something like that. A lot of MAGA dudes wear that type of stuff. Yeah. Imagine a MAGA dude wearing that type of shirt, but it's like a big head of a turkey with its gizzard dangling about. Yeah, I think I I wouldn't put it past them though either. That's what it would have. It would. <laughs> it gives me so much joy. So like a, a turkey with big ass muscles, you know. Just... <laughs> it's got "Don't Tread on Me" tattooed on its big cartoon muscular arms. Yep. Oh, it's awful. 
That's just awful. That's what would end up happening. Nothing would be different. We just have yeah, buff turkeys on shirts <laughs> with blue, thing. big buff like we'd have the emblem of a turkey, but with the Blue Lives Matter flag on it. You know, yeah. tattooed on people. Oh, you know what it would be? It would be all the. You know how you draw the uh, the simple version of the turkey with like the big feathers on the back, like yeah. with your hand. It'll just be the colors for the Blue Lives Matter flag <laughs> and the, for each of the fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Okay, maybe the eagle we're, is we're, fine. We're, we're imagining a hilarious future, a, a hilarious alternate fu- uh, present. By the way, only if as things as this things couldn't get weirder. God, we were so close to getting just a peak of weirdness. With Ben Franklin had his way, the dove would have yeah. been nice too. But come on, turkey would have been great. Dove. I always associated dove with like religious stuff, but that's just like being a Catholic. So. Uh, to me, I, I was I would be like that. Very strange. I mean, the dove with the olive branch is like the almost a universal sign of peace, you know. Yeah. Like, so, but I, it's used yeah. a lot in right. like in like Catholic imagery, which I, that's probably why they went away from that. I'd imagine they don't mm. mention it in the song clearly, but I yeah. bet that was like eh, if we're trying to do the whole separation of church and state thing, we can't really connect ourselves with that. Yeah. Anyway, love the turkey. This song, by the way, the egg. Yeah. <laughs> This was apparently the last song written for the musical, a very late edition. How late? Uh, it was actually inspired by the promotional art for the show, which features ah. a baby eaglet being born out of a hatched egg. And they went, oh, let's do a song about that. How many people wrote those songs? Just him. Just one. Okay. I almost wonder if like he was there with like the director of the, of the, the show or the writer of the show, and they were just like, Oh, that's that's neat. A little eagle. And the other guy was like, you know, it almost was a turkey. And he was like, what? <laughs> he yeah, was like, that could have been it. And he's like, well, we should we should write a song about that. That that very well may have happened. Yeah, yeah. It was just Sherman Edwards who wrote the music and lyrics to this. So, uh, yeah, good on him. Adding that song last minute because this is a really fun song with the three of them. It's the only time where it's our three leading characters in a song together. Oh, I mean, but Mr. Adams. But like, this is the three of them in a song together, doing it all together. Yeah, and I feel like it's a nice break from some of the more serious. Yeah, the last couple songs were, I mean, "Cool Considerate Men" is is sort of a is a sort of lighthearted ditty, sort of masked. Uh, I'd say a darker song masked as a lighthearted ditty. Yeah, I think it's because it's after Mama Look Sharp. We need yeah. something to something to you know. We gotta brighten the spirits. Let's gotta bring up the room here, folks. Yeah, exactly. So after that song, the trio entered the Congressional Hall as the declaration reading has finished. And immediately all of Congress raises their hand to suggest their own edits, which we will now hear over the ensuing days. There are a lot of really smaller ones that I think will give history nerds a thrill, but a lot of changes here that don't really change the intention of the document, really. It is interesting because... You know, the relevance today, you might say, like, oh, what's the relevance to what we're experiencing now? Um, Just look at everything with COVID. The state's rights, you know, when it comes to laws, even even so much as pandemic, uh, uh, you know, uh, responses are totally all about like, well, my state says this. So, yeah, I mean, literally changing the wording wasn't the the, one of the guys from Delaware where. 
the uh, the Irish uh, delegate is just like, oh, aren't you going to feel great when you, you're on your deathbed in those three words? Only a few or one of them or yeah. whatever it was is in there. But it, in a way, it does affect it a lot. Because I think it's uh, it was when he was talking about having uh, jury sentencing people. Yeah. Jury trials. And he's like, well, you know, the tyranny means that we can't have. He's like, well, you got to put that it's mostly exempt from jury trials because we had jury trials. And then he's like, fine. Okay. Whatever. The idea. <laughs> yeah, all these things that are small and again, don't change the main intent of it. But as you said, long, long term repercussions. Yeah, and if anyone's ever been a part of any kind of a group project at school or work, you know how this goes. <laughs> Hold on. I have an opinion. Okay, please. Please, let's hear it. Opinions are overrated, to be mm. honest. A <laughs> uh, great line that comes out of all of these little changes. John Adams again saying, this is a revolution, damn it. We're going to have to offend somebody, which, again, bravo. Well, no, because when they went to when they went to see George Washington... And his army. What were they doing? They were peacefully protesting in sanctioned areas where the British government allowed them to. And that is all they ever did. They never once stepped right. out of line. Right. No and, destruction of property. And that's how America was born. Right. Right. As we all know. As exactly. they tell us. Yeah. Let's not try to muddle history here, Cody. <laughs> Continue. One of the bigger changes, though, is John Dickinson's does suggest... Uh, that the suggestion that King George is a tyrant should be removed, which uh, finally compels Thomas Jefferson to defend his work. Uh, the word is left back in after a lot of support on Jefferson's side and an impassioned uh, response from Jefferson himself. Adams reaches his breaking point when one of the congressmen decries the lack of any mention of fishing rights in the Declaration. Fishing rights? Good God! <laughs> Imagine if the most, one of the most influential documents in American history, if not the most influential, included a line about About deep deep sea sea fishing rights. We declare ourselves independent. Also, you can go bass fishing uh, off the coast of Maine from April to November. That is it. So, yes, he reaches his breaking point there. The debate at that point, John Hancock is ready to conclude the debate, but before that happens, South Carolina's Edward Rutledge, with his southern charm and uh, uh, that thick accent and uh, looking like a combination of Rod Stewart meets Liberace, uh, chimes in and points out a passage uh, that calls for the abolition of slavery. Jefferson makes an impassioned argument for its abolishment, to which Rutledge points out his own hypocrisy for owning slaves. As you mentioned, I think earlier, Jefferson says he plans to free his slaves, but shocker, that never actually happened. And we all know his his infamous history regarding uh, the slaves that he owned, and that's only grown in stature throughout the years. Yeah. It's not good. I think this movie handles this really well and points out the hypocrisy it's not just like oh all these guys like oh yeah these guys were so against slavery and this guy was so against slavery and like these are good these were the good guys and these were the bad guys um where they have the song molasses to rum which explicitly points out there is a lot of guys who are all profiting off of the slave trade whether you are for its abolishment or not you're all getting a piece of the pie they do a really good job uh, of laying that out 
uh, this is a good song, and he's great. The guy who plays Edward Rutledge, uh, the name is um, uh, not coming to me. Let me double-check that. Uh, that would be John Cullum, uh, who plays him and played him on Broadway. There's actually no evidence that that Edward Rutledge was the leading opponent to uh, get rid of the inclusion of abolishing slavery in the Declaration of Independence. But that dance, quote-unquote, that he's referring to in the song is a very real thing. South Carolina, Georgia, and a third state, a northern state, were apparently the three biggest challengers to this. It was not another southern state. Uh, We don't actually know what northern state it was. That's really what becomes the main conflict here at the end of the movie um, when, again, in actuality, a lot of these guys... Adams and Franklin are maybe the only ones they kind of come out clean in history. Yeah. So there you go. So it's a very stirring, powerful song. Uh, and then Rutledge and the entire Deep South faction storm out after the song. Samuel Chase returns, delivering good news from a united Maryland, says they're all for independence. But it falls on deaf ears, as the proponents of independence believe that the fight has failed. Franklin tells Adams that for the vote to, for independence to succeed, the abolition of slavery must be taken out, which Adams just cannot accept. Uh, he goes up to the bell tower where, once again, he seeks the guidance of uh, his force ghost, Abigail. La Llorona. Who is always there to calm his nerves. Uh, she reassures him that, yes, don't worry, victory is still within reach. How do I know that? Well, we get the reprise of yours, yours, yours where Abigail says, hey, you know that saltpeter you've been begging for? Ta-da! There it was, the saltpeter that all the women uh, across New England, all the wives of New England, all got together and finally delivered John's request for all of that saltpeter for gunpowder. Finally. So inspired, Adams tells Franklin and Jefferson to get their houses in order. Jefferson goes to convince Rutledge and the rest of the South to hop on board. Franklin is tasked for turning the rest of Pennsylvania, of course, which includes John Dickinson. And then at that point, Adam is alone in the Congressional Hall with uh, Charles Thompson, who is uh, the man who has been reading the dispatches, uh, the secretary of the Continental Congress. He's been reading those dispatches from General Washington throughout. He reads one more dispatch from Washington that says, is anybody there? Does anybody care? And as Thompson leaves, John ponders the same thing in the song, Is Anybody There? What a flourish to end this this show with, to end this movie with. Yeah, it was really well. It's a really, like, nice, and I know you especially love it because, you know, you're you're big on solo male voice pieces and musicals. So you're like, this is like, like you're saying, if the rest of this is catnip, this is like a big bowl of hyper catnip for you right here. I like the song is very patient and it, and it's not afraid to just like take it slowly and, and especially since we're nearing the end of the movie here and it's very easy you know when you have a, a single voice to to you know be boisterous and the big crescendo to yeah to the end of it it's almost in a way like a fourth of july fireworks show yeah where it starts off small and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it peaks and then in but to really wrap it all up that sort of like suddenly he realizes i'm all alone yeah. this is this is my fight in a way just yeah and wonders to himself is anybody can anybody see what i see 
Or is he all alone, Cody? Yeah, or is he? By the way, the line, yet through all the gloom, I see the rays of ravishing light and glory that is plucked directly from a letter John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail. Wow. Such a good line. As the song ends, as you say, can anybody see what I see? Is anybody there? Well, yes, Lyman Hall of Georgia was there. He overhears the whole thing. It's me, Margaret. Yeah. (laughs) And Lyman Hall declares his intention uh, to vote with him on independence. It's July 2nd. The vote is underway with Delaware's ailing Caesar Rodney joining the vote to secure Delaware. Uh, As voting begins, South Carolina once again puts the vote on the brink. After more deliberation, ultimately, Thomas Jefferson does take out the language about the abolition of slavery from the document, and the South votes yay. Uh, I think there may even be a line. I I couldn't clarify whether this was cut from the movie or it was an actual line from John Adams. It appeared to be an actual line from John Adams when it was going to be included in the movie where Adams was going to say to Ben Franklin, like, in a hundred years... Like, this will all come back, it, it, to paraphrase, this is all going to come back to haunt us in 100 years. So, uh, they, but the they cut it out because they're like, that would be, that's almost too unbelievable. It's a little too on the nose. Yeah. But from everything I gathered, that was an actual line from John Adams in real life. Oh, he was very prophetic, clearly. Uh, so it comes down to Pennsylvania. As John Dickinson is about to deal a finishing blow, Ben Franklin steps in to try to sway the third delegate out of Pennsylvania, the always fickle James Wilson. That's been a running gag throughout the movie that he will basically just be in John Dickinson's shadow for all of his life. The other one being that uh, New York will always abstain courteously. Uh, so there's all these guys who are just very fickle and or they don't have they don't know what to vote for. Um but in James Wilson's case, he finally goes against Dickinson and stands up for himself, saying that he doesn't want to be remembered as the man who voted against independence and, in fact, doesn't want to be remembered at all. So he votes yay. It's unanimous. The vote for independence has passed, including New York, where uh, the son, uh, the sons of Lewis Morris uh, have now joined the fight, have enlisted as New York was attacked by the Redcoats. Uh, so even he has joined. Uh, The next day, John Adams makes a rare request to change the document, saying that the word Jefferson was looking for is not inalienable. It's unalienable. Apparently, this is a cheeky reference to printed copies of the declaration that, as legend says, Adams changed to include the correct grammar. Hmm. Uh, His one one mark, his one little bit of uh, editorial... Yeah, one bit, a little bit of editorial there. Uh, Hancock signs before anyone else can. Before And then another message from Washington arrives, the most dire yet. They are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered. Out, uh, I'm sorry. Wrong musical. Wrong <laughs> American Revolution musical. I apologize. But yeah, they are, they are at the brink right now. And that leads us to the finale where the next day, the, on the 4th of July, Congress is reconvening, signing the document. Uh, as I mentioned, Lewis Morris now is even the, the next man after John Hancock to sign that document. Uh, and you see everybody sort of take their place. Like Stephen Hopkins, he says to him, you can sit. See? And he's like, no, no, no. I want to see every man's face. And as it, as it backs up, you see a sort of recreation of that famous painting of the, uh, of the day that the, decla- the Declaration of Sign. Many of the men are taking their position as they were in that famous painting and you hear the bells ringing 
out louder and louder, more ominously, as it signifies the official start of the American Revolution. And uh, I always like this ending because to me, it's not this big, like, flourish, like, grandeur, every happy ending. It's like, because America has been, it's a lot of blood has been shed and a lot of bad things have happened. It's not like, yay us. Yeah, this is just the beginning of, like, you know, Right, war. exactly. It shouldn't be. But anybody <laughs> like, else, I think, yeah. it, it, less thoughtful people would have been like, huzzah, we're independent yeah. now, fireworks, hooray. But instead, it's like, no, uh, this is a war now. And the American yeah. experiment has begun. And things are not going to go perfectly. And I think that this end, while it kind of can be jarring, I think, to a lot of people at first, uh, I, that's why I like this ending. It, it, it keeps you on your toes to the very, very last minute. 1776. I have waxed poetic enough about it. I, for one, enjoyed it. And uh, I cannot wait for the sequel to see what happens. <laughs> Paul, what if I were to tell you we're living in it, baby? <laughs> nice. Oh, boy. Well, uh, we're, we're getting into a lot of American history. And, of course, this is now we're just two days away from Independence Day. Uh, you may have a long weekend this weekend, and uh, if you do enjoy it, if you are one of those people who has been lighting off fireworks since, uh, you know, May 20th, hey, man. Earlier than that, Cody. It's been going on since, like, March. Look, go ahead and blow your load on 4th of July, but if I hear another one after this weekend, come on, guys. We will. We will, Cody. We are going to. I think this is just the new way of life. We're just going to keep hearing fireworks. Eh, it's all right. Yeah. Yeah, well, well. Uh, anyway, our dogs would uh, would would hope that uh, you know. I think my dog is fully used to it now. Well, then maybe we've indoctrinated I, I think, the dogs. I, yeah, I think she's like now, like unless it's like an exceptionally loud one, in which case all she does is bark. Like she's not really afraid anymore. She's just kind of yeah. like she almost gives me the look, like fucking again, like. <laughs> I'm trying to fucking nap and nibble on my tail for a couple minutes here. I, you know? Look, and I'm not trying to be like a uh, a, a, a next door Karen right here, but uh, I, well, the people posting about it, what do you what what do you, what what do you think's gonna right? That's the thing they're posting about it like on next door, like as if the people doing that are on next door. Uh, Come yeah, on, since we got our. Now, I got kicked off of next door, so I can't see that. Stuff anymore, but, uh, <laughs> That's a badge uh, of honor, right there, Paul. Oh yeah, um, but I do get the the ring notifications because I have a ring doorbell, and uh, yeah, um, I'll just I'll just I'll go at this as a PSA to everyone out there. If you have you know, if if you got a package stolen from your front porch, hey, I get it. That sucks. If you got a package stolen from your front porch at three o'clock in the morning, that one's on you, man. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, some people work overnights. Yeah, but but if you at don't, that point, then yeah, s- send it to a FedEx thing to get picked up. Pick true. up yourself. Like, true. I- I'm sorry, Fair enough. but like to be like, can you like people are posting like, can you believe someone picked this up at three in the morning? It's like, well, yeah, I kind of yeah, do. I absolutely can. What? It's the witching hour. Come on. Yeah, well, what's the fuck? Come on. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you think the people walking around at three o'clock in the morning were were doing so just you know for the exercise? Yeah, exactly. It's I, know. I just I just think it's funny to see people complain about it as though it's like this crazy. Whoa! How dare you? Yeah. But yeah. 
So as we head into this weekend with fireworks aplenty and uh, look, this, there's a lot of American history in this that is, is a lot of it's accurate, but a lot of it also takes creative liberties. There were going to be ah. too many to mention to sprinkle in throughout the, the discussion of this movie. So I decided, Paul, to, to quiz you on your American history. Oh, good Lord. So I'm going American history F or T and F, I guess. I, I tried to do a little play on words and it didn't really work, but hey, whatever. Okay. Uh, American history true or false. Uh, five things in this movie that maybe or maybe not were uh, changed to uh, make it, give it a little more dramatic gravitas. So here we go. Our first question, true or false? John Adams was described as, quote, obnoxious and disliked by his fellow congressmen. True. That is actually false. Really? I thought, especially because they said it in this and in Hamilton, they mentioned him being a dick. Like, I thought, okay, it must be. I think it's, well, one, that, I think that portrayal of him became so iconic, po you know, post-1776, that it almost became, like, the de facto version of John Adams that we see. But see, in, I didn't yeah. see I didn't see the Paul Giamatti vehicle. Uh, I've seen a few. I've seen a few, and it's very very good. Okay, but is he a dick in it, or is it more historically accurate? I it's guess. more historically historically accurate. He's very impassioned. He's 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 he is definitely the frontline fighter for independence. Um, and I think there's some people who are annoyed by him, um, but he is in fact. One, he was one of the most respected congressmen of his time. He, now, he would later describe himself as, quote, obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular many years after his congressional stint, but more to the point, 20, about 25 years removed from his less successful tenure as president, where maybe that reputation more so solidified itself. In fact, John Adams in this movie and in the show is more of a composite character of John and his cousin Samuel Adams, who also served in ah, Congress at this time. So the beer mug. That mogul. kind of yeah, that 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 kind of explains why he is the way he is in this movie, and it doesn't. It's not a direct reflection of who he was in real life. All right, number two, true or false? Despite his portrayal, John Dickinson was actually a proponent of the working man. True. That is true. Okay. Dickinson represented the mid-Atlantic Quaker population in Pennsylvania and actually shared many of John Adams' views, uh, particularly about the working man. Quakers were notoriously anti-slavery. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, notorious in their time period, not sure. notorious now. Exactly. I'm right, not, right, right. I'm not saying they're Put things in perspective. Put things yes. in perspective of that me, time period. Yes, I'm sorry. I felt like I needed to rectify what I had just said. Yeah. But Dickinson, uh, in fact, many of the uh, the quotes that Adam spouts in this movie uh, denouncing British rule are actually plucked right out of Dickinson's writing, specifically from a series of essays titled Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. Uh, and despite Adams calling uh, Dickinson as a Dickinson, a lawyer as an insult, uh, Dickinson himself practiced law. Number three, true or false, the Declaration of Independence nearly fell apart because of the inclusion of a clause abolishing slavery false yeah so this is sort of a trick but yes sort of false yes there was a debate about including in writing a clause that would abolish slavery and it was taken out but the vote for independence takes place july 2nd there's not a big huff about like there was no walking out 
There was no like people standing up for the morals, uh, the moral side of it. And in fact, most delegates from the South and from the North uh, supported deleting it from the document just so it would speed the process along. Yeah. They said, a fight for another day. Let's put that off for 100 years. I don't think that'll be a problem, right? That won't be this long growing sore in our in America's soul. And luckily, we ha- we've learned completely, and we don't do that kind of thing anymore. We don't say like, "Hey, uh, you know, why would we need Medicare for all?" Instead, how about we just build just a little bit what we got right now, and um, yeah, you know, hopefully no one notices. Clearly, American America, uh, not the most proactive of societies, more of a reactive society. E e pluribus baby steps. Yep. Anyway, there you go. True or false? Richard Henry Lee's cousin Henry Lee not Richard Henry Lee, served as Virginia's governor. Did you get, was that a little confusing? <laughs> Richard confused. Henry Lee has a cousin named Henry Lee. Okay. That's the man who actually served as governor, not Richard Henry Lee. True or false? Ooh, that's a, that's a very innocuous one. That's why it's <laughs> true? It's true. Uh, cousin Henry Lee was the governor of Virginia from 1791 to seventy ninety four. Was this just a way to cover up the fact that Richard Henry Lee didn't do anything yep. after he it? <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Now, Richard H. did serve as U.S. Senator from 1789 to 1792. So, there's that. Um, of course, then uh, Cousin Henry uh, probably makes an even bigger impact as uh, the father of one of America's biggest fucking losers, Robert E. Lee. Wild that the man who first brought forth the resolution for American independence and the guy who about a generation later fights against America come from the same bloodline. And finally, true or false in reality, Ben Franklin and John Adams were not close friends. False. It's true. As far as I could tell. Now there may be some historian who says otherwise to me. Uh, I should probably talk to my own family about this. They may know better. But from everything I was reading, uh, the two worked together a lot and I think had like a good working relationship. Um, that And that's why you see them paired together here. They are the, really the ones working on independence and going to a lot of places to get aid from different countries and to, you know, strike peace with different countries during the American Revolution. But they did not really have a close bond beyond that. Adams grew tired of Franklin's billowing. He called him aloof, very full of himself. While Franklin didn't mesh with, he respected Adams' opinions, but found him to be almost too passionate, and his emotion was just too raw at times. Um, Classic odd couple uh, in the movie, but in real life, odd couples don't always make for uh, you know, great plays or sitcoms. So maybe they were just maybe they were just you know work colleagues. They were work colleagues who were not going to go grab a you know an ale or a cider afterwards. So, yeah. yeah. By the way, this is something we were talking about to end it on this. Stephen Hopkins getting two mugs of huge mugs of rum in the morning um, just makes you realize no one's drinking water back then. Because what oh, at, yeah. th- at that point it's still it's cleaner to have a beer or rum or cider yeah. or whatever. Well, think about like all the pain that like if you every time you wanted a glass of water, if you had to go and make sure you had some that was already boiled, yeah, and just so you could drink it, it's like, ugh. who wants a hot glass of water when it's hot as hell yeah. in Philadelphia? Yeah, no one wants that. Gross. 
Open the window. Yeah. That's what I said. Just open the window. Uh, they must have been drunk as hell when they signed the Declaration of Independence then. Like all of our founding yes. fathers, all these huge moments in our country's history were done by people who were probably blind drunk. And that's why we do it on the 4th of July. That's why we get drunk to the point where Cody, you just made a perfect point right where there, we can't you know? we can't even think straight or talk coherently because that's yep. what the founding fathers did when exactly. they declared our independence back in 1776. God bless America. Dear God. Dear I, God. I salute you drunk bastards. Yes. I christen this beer bong in the name of America and all that she stands for. I'm almost hearing you as John F. Kennedy. I uh, uh, declare this bong for uh, the United States and uh, drink up. Saturdays are for the boys. All right, here we oh, go. Oh, man. You know, the other thing is you look back and you're like, wow, man, presidents used to be philanderers, you know? crazy how it works things have changed haven't they yep things have really changed well on that note uh, enjoy your fourth of july weekend your holiday enjoy weekend. your turkey day enjoy your turkey day exactly what it should have been this should have been the real turkey day if ben franklin had his way fourth of july we'd be eating turkey twice a year fourth of july and thanksgiving cody can you imagine fourth of july you got a nice cold glass of beer a nice mug and in your other hand, you have a giant Disneyland-style Thanksgiving turkey leg. Whoo! I gotta say, Paul, that sounds real inviting. This don't sound bad, does it? It sounds really good. You know? So, hey. have a proper Ben Franklin Fourth of July with a huge glass of, of, of your finest cider and a giant oversized turkey leg. That's the way to do it. That's my America. That's right. That's right. On that note, uh, have a very happy and safe 4th of July. And uh, if you want to hear more from us, of course, subscribe to us, uh, review us, and rate us uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, we are That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. Search us there. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, of course, go to our website, moviemusicalpod.com. Follow us on Twitter at moviemusicalpod and on Facebook at moviemusicalpod. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Pasby. I'm at the Paul Ponte. You can also go to paulponte.com to see my photography, my music, my other podcast projects, including Indie Handshake, an independent pro wrestling podcast. And I'm proud of myself today, Cody. I did not for I did not once have a reference to English soccer or pro wrestling this entire day. And you absolutely could have done the English soccer because I mean we're talking about British and we're talking all that, so didn't you happen. Know? Didn't yeah. happen. All right, and until next time, by God, I have had this podcast for 10 years. Paul and his parliament have gold-cullied and diddled this podcast. And uh, I had something, and it's gone now. Until next time, I'm Cody Pasby. I'm Paul Ponte, lawyer! Dear God! We'll see you down the Bielabrick Road. <laughs>